Hello and welcome to this episode of Tech Personal Finance. I am your host, Mike Troxel. Today, we're going to cover six key items to consider before leaving your job. We will cover items for mortgages, exercising stock options, and health coverage, everything between. Be sure to listen to the end as I go over a tax issue that many people run into and that you certainly want to avoid. The first key consideration is around your cash cushion or some people call it their emergency fund. Like a startup, you want to get a general idea of what your burn rate is or how much you're spending per month. And you also want to get an idea of what your runway is or how many months worth of expenses you have in the bank. The general rule of thumb is to have three to six months of expenses saved. There are reasons to have less than that, and there are certainly reasons to have more than that. But before you make a jump, you want to have an idea of how much cash you have, and more importantly, how much time you have, especially if you're planning to take a break between jobs. Job changes and career moves are very, very important events. So if a little extra cash allows you to take your time and avoid getting into a job that you don't like out of desperation, then it is certainly worth it to have a little extra in savings. The second item to consider while still in the planning stages of leaving a job is related to mortgages and home buying. In short, lenders love W-2 jobs. They don't like no income. They don't like potential businesses and great ideas. They don't like sabbaticals or self-employed individuals unless they have a few pretty looking tax returns. So if you really want to buy a house, generally it makes sense to do so while you're still employed with the W-2 versus after you leave a job. Keep in mind that if your plans are set in stone and you're literally walking out the door of your employer, you would certainly have to disclose that to the lender. However, if a departure is more uncertain down the road, I don't believe that is something that would be factored in. Obviously, it is against the law to lie on mortgage applications, and I'm not suggesting that. It is worth noting that a job change during the home buying process usually does not disrupt things unless it's a completely different type of job, a different industry, a different type of pay, potentially moving from base salary to commissions, or moving from full-time W-2 to a 1099 contractor. As it relates to self-employed individuals, there are certainly exceptions, but the general rule is that lenders want to see two years of tax returns. Usually, they average the two years as long as the income is trending up. Many times, for newly self-employed individuals, that first tax return is not one to write home about, since it might be a startup year or maybe a partial year, depending on what month you started. So it could take two, three, or four filed tax returns before your self-employment income is strong enough for you to qualify for a mortgage. The third item to consider is pull out your calendar. We want to know your upcoming bonus dates, your upcoming vesting dates, whether it's RSUs or options. Generally, if you're in the first four years of a job, the vests could be pretty meaningful. Beyond that, they tend to drop off a little bit. I think it's important to keep in mind that anytime you leave a job, you're always going to leave money on the table. Now, they call this sort of thing golden handcuffs because you feel like you cannot leave with all this money coming down the pike. While that's true, and I think it's important, when you're leaving, 
essentially any tech job, you're going to leave some money on the table. Bonuses, options, RSUs, not everything is going to be fully vested when you leave. That's just how it is. On the other hand, you'll likely get a new equity grant at a new job, which should hopefully make up for the foregone equity and bonuses. To reiterate, we want to look at the calendar to know these dates because if they're coming up or if they're right around the corner, it could make sense to stick around for a while. But obviously, you can play this game for a long time. And before you know it, you're always seven, eight months away from your bonus whenever you think about leaving. And you could stick in a job you don't like for a long time. So if it's far off, you might be better off leaving. But if it's a few weeks or a couple months away, you could be swayed into staying. The fourth item is related to incentive stock options or ISOs. Oftentimes, exercising can create an AMT bill if there's a large enough difference between the value of the shares and the price at which you're purchasing them. Assuming there would be an AMT bill if you exercise your ISOs, and assuming that you want to exercise, it could be very advantageous to leave towards the end of the year in Q4. With NSOs or non-qualified stock options, in some cases, you can have years to make your exercising decisions even after you leave the company. Obviously, you want to double check and look at your stock grants. 90 days is the common window, but you could have years and years with NSOs. However, with ISOs, you're limited by the IRS to 90 days after the termination date. Given the 90-day window, and the fact that AMT essentially restarts and recalculates every year, it could be advantageous to spread your exercise over two calendar years instead of cramming it into one calendar year. Given that you may want to spread your exercise over two years, and there is the 90-day time frame, it could make sense to delay your departure until Q4 so you can exercise some options in either October, November, December, and then exercise the next batch in January of the following year with spreads out, reduces, or eliminates the AMT bill. Before we get into the final two considerations, this episode is brought to you by The Weekly Vest, a short and sweet email newsletter containing one chart, one quote, and one tweet. I don't know about you, but I received too many long emails. That's why I started The Weekly Vest, short, sweet, and valuable. You can read it in under 30 seconds. You can sign up at theweeklyvest.com and let me know what you think. The fifth item to consider is around healthcare. Typically, if you leave during the month, you get to keep your employer coverage through the end of the month. Therefore, it could be advantageous to leave during the first part of the month, given that you'll have health coverage for a few more weeks. This could save you money. It could definitely buy you some time as you sort out next steps. In short, if you're weighing leaving your job on the 29th of the month or a couple days later on the 2nd of the following month, it usually makes sense to leave on the 2nd. So what happens when your employer coverage ends? If you're married and your spouse has benefits, you can likely get their health care, so it's usually not a problem. Outside of that, generally there's a consideration between COBRA versus the insurance marketplace. COBRA is a government program that stands for Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. You don't really need to know what it stands for, but I figured I'd share. COBRA is essentially a continuation of your current health coverage without the employer subsidy. 
So typically you get the same exact coverage, but you pay a little bit more or sometimes a lot more. The deadline to enroll is 60 days after your coverage ends. So you're going back to that example. Let's say you left on the second of the month. Typically your health coverage runs through the 30th or 31st, the end of the month. And then usually the COBRA deadline is 60 days beyond that date. So 60 days beyond the 30th. There's an interesting loophole or a look back option where coverage with COBRA can be retroactive. Let's say you enrolled on day 59. In order to get retroactive coverage, you will need to pay the full premiums for those previous 60 days. For example, if you did not enroll in COBRA right away and you wanted to risk it and go without health insurance for a little while, if you break your leg 10 days after your employer coverage ends, you can still enroll in COBRA, which would retroactively give you health insurance for when the leg was broken. Again, you would still have to pay for that. Of course, if this situation applies to you, I encourage you to read up on COBRA and the options available to you. Please don't take any of this as legal or healthcare advice. COBRA coverage, it typically lasts up to 18 to 36 months. At that point, you'd have to find other health insurance options. Commonly, COBRA is pretty expensive, so I don't usually see people keep it for that long. Outside of COBRA, you can look on the healthcare marketplace, oftentimes referred to as the healthcare exchange. In California, where a lot of our listeners are, the website and the organization is called Covered California. But if you're in a different state, you can just Google your state name and healthcare exchange, and that should get you to the right place. Typically, the sites are pretty straightforward, and you can easily review all coverage options, deductibles, and costs. Generally, it makes sense to weigh coverage options on the marketplace versus COBRA early on and not wait until your 60-day COBRA deadline is right around the corner. The sixth item to think about is related to your 401k contributions. If you're leaving your employer and if your goal is to max out your 401k for the year, it could make sense to maximize those contributions prior to leaving. Because you may not know when you're going to start your next job, and some startups don't have a 401k yet, and sometimes you're not eligible to enroll right away, it could make sense to max out your 401k while you're still with your employer. Keep in mind that the 401k max is per taxpayer per year, and it's not per employer. So you can't max out your 401k with one employer by June, leave to a new job, max it out again with your next employer, it does not work that way. With that in mind, if you're moving to a new employer, you do want to be mindful of what your 401k contributions were at the previous employer for that calendar year, as you do not want to go over the limit because this creates some tax issues that involve what I call the three Ps, problems, penalties, and paperwork. For example, if in 2023, if your personal limit is 22500 if you put in 15000 at one employer, generally you have $7,500 left at your next employer. Your new employer will not know this. So you may have to log in to your new 401k platform and adjust the settings accordingly. And you would likely have to do it manually to ensure that no excess contributions take place. 
A few times I've seen year-end bonuses affect this master plan. For example, someone does the math perfectly and they calculate that they can do 5% contributions at their new employer, which will get them right up to the line, which is great. They then get a surprise spot bonus at year-end and 5% of that bonus goes into their 401k, which throws them over the limit, which causes problems. In the event this happens to you, it is a lot easier to resolve before the tax deadline in April than it is after. So again, your contributions are usually done by 1231, December 31st. In the event you make an excess deferral or an excess contribution, it's usually a lot easier to resolve in those first couple months before the tax filing deadline. If it does happen to you, I encourage you to reach out to your tax preparer and let your employer know that you made an excess deferral into your 401k and they can help you make the change. As always, I hope you found this episode helpful. If you have any questions, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. You can find any links or resources for this episode at techpersonalfinancepod.com. And the easiest place to find me is at miketroxel.com. That's T-R-O-X-E-L-L. There I have links to everything I'm working on. 